0: All right, today, I would like to of one of my favorite topics, and for those of you who have been to other retreats, you've heard me speak on St. Thomas More before. Um, some of the things that you will hear in this conference are things that, that I have discussed previously, but there are some new uh, things that I will add to it and also uh, bring in some uh, other interesting things in terms of the history and the, and the art of the time period. So St. Thomas More truly is not just a man for all seasons, but he is, the, I would say, the man for our season. And this thought was echoed by G.K. Chesterton in 1929 when he said, Thomas More is more important at this moment than at any moment since his death. And remember, in 1929, this was six years before the canonization of St. Thomas More. He was more important at this moment than at any moment since his death, even perhaps the great moment of his dying, but he is not quite so important as he will be in about a hundred years' time. In all times, and with every challenge facing Holy Mother Church, God raises up for us great men and women to serve as holy, pious examples that we might learn from their example and also to advance in our own holiness. The Church seems split asunder, confusion abounds. The hierarchy is in disarray. Cardinals are opposing cardinals. Bishops are opposing bishops. The laity is often confused and disheartened, and they don't know which way to turn or what to believe. Corruption at the church's highest level seems rampant, and in certain regions of the world, financial incentive and sins against charity and chastity seem to be the primary motivating factors of certain priests, bishops and cardinals. And I suppose I could right readily be speaking of today in the present time, but in this instance, I'll actually be speaking of the church in 16th century Europe and particularly in England. As many of you know, recently the world celebrated, and I use the term loosely and in quotation marks, the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation which occurred in 1517, and it was sparked when an Augustinian monk, Martin Luther, nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, or Wittenburg. At that time, of course, there was no social media, no text messaging, no instant uh, communication, and news traveled slowly, and the effect of Luther's actions slowly evolved for many years afterwards. Uh, This was not the first instance, though, and and we'll get to that in a minute, I'll speak of it in a second, um, of things having to do with splits in the church or protestation or Protestantism, if you will. One of the main effects of Luther's activities was um, an economic one, whereby various men, princes and merchants, commoners, all the way uh, uh, through the social strata, they came down against the Catholic Church and used it as a justification for looting church property and monasteries and convents. Endowments for hospitals, colleges, schools, and guilds were seized, and Hilaire Belloc estimated that somewhere between 50% and seven-eighths of the Church's wealth was seized under these varying circumstances. The perpetrators of the looting became entrenched in their own situations and were thereby unwilling and unlikely to give back any economic windfall they had realized. I'm sorry, I, I realize that I'm kind of talking to... The, 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 this side is seeing my back. So It's against this backdrop that the drama of England's King Henry VIII unfolded in the first half of the 16th century, and along with him officially of the inter-between Thomas. um, But as so often is the case, the history behind the story is much more interesting. Uh, This is Hans Holbein. He was a German Renaissance painter born in 1497. um, And he contributed substantially to the knowledge of uh, Henry's court. He was present in Henry's court. He knew Thomas more personally, um, visited him, and uh, has many drawings and paintings that have survived, probably the most famous picture of Thomas More that people are used to seeing. That's a, that is a Holbein painting. in uh, the appearance of the member, members of Henry's court. Um, so he probably has provided for us a most realistic uh, picture of what, what the characters of the time look like. So here's Thomas More. This is actually a drawing by Holbein done in about 1936. Thomas More was born in London, in the family home in Milk Street. He was the second of six children and the oldest son. And his father, John More, recorded the date in the back of Geoffrey Monmouth's A History of the Kings of Britain as Friday, February the 17th, sorry, February the 7th, the 17th year of King Edward IV. It's either a typo or a scribble or he got the date wrong, but 1478 was indeed in the 17th year of the reign of Edward IV, but February the 7th fell on a Friday in 1477, not 1478. So exactly when he was born, we don't know exactly, but it's right around that time. Here's John Moore, it's also a drawing by Hans Holbein. Most of, the, most of the pictures and the paintings will be by Holbein. If not, I'll point them out to you. Thomas was born into very tumultuous times, and this was to affect uh, his outlook as he um, grew and throughout his education, but he was born in the midst of the War of the Roses, the civil war between the rival factions of the House of Plantagenet. And the two sub-houses, if you were, was the House of York, represented by the White Rose, and the House of Lancaster, represented by the Red Rose. And the War of the Roses took place from about 1455 until 1487. It was actually an outgrowth of a lot of the financial and social ills that had resulted from the Hundred Years' War that had engulfed Europe from 1337 until one thousand, four hundred and fifty-three. Edward had ascended the throne to be the first Yorkist king in 1461, and Thomas's father uh, had close ties. He was a London attorney, and politician of the time. Edward died in 1483 when Thomas was about six years old and Edward's teenage son, Edward V, was crowned to rule for about three months. There's quite a bit of intrigue about this at the time. Edward uh, V and his younger brother, they were uh, imprisoned in the tower by an uncle, an evil uncle, Richard, who was later to become Richard And this is all in a narrative of medieval intrigue worthy of William Shakespeare, who was to write a little bit later, actually composed a play. It's debated whether he actually wrote the play of St. Thomas More or not. But certainly there are uh, several pages that are in uh, Shakespeare's own handwriting of the play. So Richard usurped and ascended the throne. And he ruled for about two years until Henry Tudor returned from the continent with an army to challenge Edward, I'm sorry, to challenge Richard, and to defeat him at the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. Henry VII was to become the first Tudor king of England, and he ruled until 1509. Uh, Now, this is a painting of of Edward VII uh, from the early 16th century, but not by Holbein. It's by Michael Sittow. It was at the age of six, and during this... uh, uh, Relatively, relative period of unrest, that Thomas began school at St. Anthony's in Threadneedle Street. St. Anthony's was a fairly famous uh, grammar school at that time, and he was instructed in Latin. The school, in particular, spent a fair amount of time uh, instructing them not just in Latin but also in debate, and they would hold contests with public oration uh, out in the school. And uh, and then they would be judged not just on their linguistic prowess, but also on their ability in Latin. It was at the age of 12, uh, roughly, about 1490, that then Thomas was sent to serve as a page in the court of John Cardinal Morton. John Cardinal Morton was the Archbishop of Canterbury at that time, and he was also the, um, he was also the Lord High Chancellor. Most of the time, uh, in, during the 14th, 15, 16, the Lord High Chancellor of England was a cleric, uh, as we will see in several examples throughout the life of Thomas More. Thomas More continued his studies during this time, uh, using various educational primers, but he also served at banquets for the cardinal. And because of the Cardinal's position, there there was a lot of uh, political activity that was going on, lots of political discussions, and Moore certainly would have been exposed to that at that time. There was certainly discussion about the question of the usurpation of the throne by Richard III. Uh, as part of this, uh, also, Thomas Moore participated in various skits or plays that were put on for the, the guests at the various banquets, and he was particularly known for being adept at being... Uh, an improv specialist. He would sometimes stand in for some of the other uh, players who might be indisposed or not be able to play at that time and then really to learn their parts and uh, do so quite quickly. Um, And also he became known uh, to have a great sense of humor during this time. Thomas excelled in the service of Morton and so much so that uh, Cardinal Morton saw to it that that, uh, Moore would attend Oxford so uh, it was uh, around the early mid 1490s that uh, that Thomas began to a- uh, attend Oxford, particularly Canterbury College at Oxford. He studied logic, rhetoric, and philosophy. He polished his Latin. He became, which was also important for him later, as he developed his uh, humanist um, philosophy and uh, really focused in on. Uh, the, the history of some of the Greek philosophers and uh, also on the study of Latin. The Oxford student statutes at the time required students uh, to with their professors and with each other in Latin. If they failed to do so, they would actually be fined. The daily schedule began at 6 a.m. and included daily mass, which was to become a lifelong habit of Moore's, and ending of the day with the recitation of the Salve Regina, and the anaphon to the Blessed Virgin from Compline. Canterbury College, typo there, Canterbury College was subsequently actually rolled into Christchurch College at Oxford, which is one of the largest colleges at Oxford, quite well endowed and has produced uh, several several famous uh, politicians at the time. Not just at the time, but since that time. Thomas left Oxford after two years at the request of his father. His father wanted him to study law. And so he was recalled to London, returning to London, and to begin his legal training at New Inn. New Inn was part of the Inns of Chancery. And at that time, there were 10 of them. The Inns of Chancery could be uh, thought of almost as a legal mm, prep school, if you will, or uh, some authors describe it as bridesmaids at the wedding. Uh, that he initially started at the New Inn, and then uh, in 1496 he moved on to Lincoln Inn. Lincoln Inn is one of the inns uh, um, of court. There's four inns of court, and he uh, studied law there until he was called to the bar in 1502. This is a picture uh, from of Lincoln uh, of Lincoln Inn. The picture on the left is particularly interesting because the statue over the doorway there is actually Thomas Moore, and his office is, that's on the outside part of the street, the inside part is in the courtyard, and you walk up the stairs and into uh, where one of his offices was. He also spent time uh, discerning a religious vocation and was also uh, uh, Erasmus, who was uh, in I believe. So Moore uh, spent time with the Carthusians at the Charter House in London, which is, if you think about it, somewhat unusual because the Carthusians are particularly uh, private and uh, probably one of the most strict, if not the strictest order um, um, in the Catholic Church. But at that time, it was allowed, they, they actually had um, quarters and lodging for people who could discern their religious Vocation and participate in the daily office and in mass and their other uh, religious activities. Moore, however, realized that his vocation was to marriage, although he continued at this time. He was living at the charterhouse, and he was um, studying law. He was, so he was living in the world, but he was also uh, living in the, uh, in the religious house of the, of the Carthusians. Erasmus um, came to London at this time, in around 1499. And this is a painting. This is a 19th-century painting of Erasmus and Thomas More. You see Thomas More all the way to the right. But they actually met uh, Henry the Seventh and met Henry the Eighth, who was the second son of Henry the Seventh. Um, More played a bit of a trick on Erasmus at the time. Again, he was sort of a jokester and a wit, but um, he. He's told, uh, he had told Erasmus what gift might be appropriate for Henry VIII or from, for the son Henry, um, and it really wasn't something that he liked very much. And so then Erasmus had to compose a poem to apologize to the young prince for, for what he had done. Not a, not a good thing to do to Henry VIII, actually, so... As I said, in about 1503, 1504, Moore realized that his vocation was actually to marriage. But he still uh, maintained strict spiritual practices throughout his life. He, he uh, practiced mortification, wore a hair shirt. His hair shirt was actually given to his daughter, uh, Margaret, before his execution, and it's preserved today in uh, the south of England in Buckfast Abbey. You can, you can visit there and you can see it. He was also a Third Order Franciscan, and he still maintains a a place on the religious calendar of the Third Order Franciscans. It's around this time, as I said, the Lord High Chancellor was often um, a cleric at this time, and John Cardinal Morton uh, relinquished that position in 1500 and was taken over by Archbishop William Warren, who was also the Archbishop of Canterbury. This is a painting by Holbein uh, done in 1527 of the Lord uh, Chancellor. In 1505, Moore married Jane Colt and the story even of his marriage is one of charity for when he was visiting the home of his future father-in-law he was most enamored with the oldest daughter. Uh, I'm sorry, he was he was most enchanted by the second daughter but the, the oldest daughter was Jane Colt and. It would have been out of place and socially awkward for the older daughter to be passed over for the second daughter for him to marry. So he actually, at least partially out of charity, married the oldest daughter, who was Jane Cole. And they lived together for about five or six years. They had four children, Margaret, Cicely, Elizabeth, and John. And then she died after six years. Realizing that he needed to take a wife to help support and to take care of his young children, uh, he, measure, he He married uh, Alice Middleton, who was a woman who was seven years senior. Moore was about 37 at this time, and Alice was 44. And not only did she help him raise his four daughters, or, I'm sorry, his four children, three daughters and a son, but her two children, Margaret and Anne, also became his wards, and he cared for them as if they were his own. He's particularly... Of, of his many patronage, patronages, he is the patron saint of uh, adoption and foster uh, foster parenting. Picture of the London Charter House. Um, Moore had great wit uh, to think of and, and often considered things um, in terms of pride that Pride, as far as he was concerned, was the greatest sin. He was really uh, tremendously influenced by Saint Augustine in this uh, realm, and so he worked very hard to combat this in his own in his own spiritual um, spiritual life. To be silly enough to think himself better than other people because his clothes are made of finer woolen thread than theirs. After all, those fine clothes were once worn by sheep, and they never turned it into anything better than a sheep. These are uh, paintings and drawings all by Holbein. So this is Margaret, uh, who, this is Margaret, there were two Margarets. There was the ward, or the stepdaughter Margaret, and then there was also his his daughter Margaret, but this is Margaret, or Meg, and her son, William Roper, also done by Holbein in 1536. Um, If you're familiar with the movie, seasons, there is a time there's actually a conflict in the movie where Thomas More will not allow uh, Meg to marry William Roper because he's become a passionate Lutheran, and she tells him he can't marry her as long as he's a heretic. Well, the story is actually a little bit out of place because at the point that he became a passionate Lutheran, they were already married, and this was tremendously painful for uh, Thomas More, and he pleaded and cajoled and tried to convince Roper uh, to to convert and to come back to Catholicism. And eventually he had to give up in order to keep peace in the family, and he just left it to God. And actually William Roper did come back and became one of his uh, great biographers, too. This is a drawing by Holbein of uh, Sicily, which is one of uh, Moore's daughters, and then his son, John Moore. He was very devoted to his family, and this was extremely important to him, and not only just being with them, but also instructing them. He made sure that the, the girls, his daughters, were instructed in various languages, and they got a far advanced education compared to what most women would get at that time. But he felt that it was very important. And he said the ordinary acts which we practice every day at the home are more important to the soul than their simplicity might suggest. Very Silesian of him at this time. To speak a bit about Moore's uh, spirituality, as I said, he maintained a very strict life uh, after living with the Carthusians. Um, R.W. Chambers, in his biography of Moore, writes that he had the habit of arising at 2 a.m. Uh, to, and spent the subsequent five hours in prayer and in study. And then he would attend mass and he often either served altar or was the cross bearer for the mass. And then, after his children are risen, he would recite the seven penitential psalms with them together. Meal times would begin uh, without conversation, and one of the children would do uh, spiritual reading from scripture or from scriptural commentary. And then, after the two Altum Domine Miserere Nobis, conversation could commence, first in regards to the reading of the evening, but then recite psalms and the Salve Regina. Thomas retained and recognized the need for solitude and to, to make retreats, and he would do this quite frequently. He had constructed on his, uh, the grounds of his house at Chelsea a building that was referred to as the new building, and he had in there a library, a gallery, and a small chapel. And upon returning from his various affairs at court throughout his life while living at Chelsea, he would retire to the new building and to reflect and to pray and to ask for guidance. He would also, uh, other sources, Thomas never wrote about this in his voluminous writings, but other sources wrote about him that he would spend every Friday in the new building as his own personal retreat, and immerse himself in prayer and in other spiritual exercises through the day and through the night, and often all night long until Saturday. He became politically active. He was a member of Parliament. He was actually the Speaker of the House of Commons at one point. And in 1509, he was a member of the company of Mercers, who at that time were uh, um, an industrial group or a trade group that was responsible for helping to uh, import and export various uh, um, uh, cloth types, items, wool and uh, silk and whatnot from the continent. He held various uh, judicial posts, and he uh, became ever-increasingly in touch with uh, Thomas Cardinal Wolsey and King Henry VIII, who he was later really become involved with, with when he was a member of the Hing's, King's High Council and also when he was to become Lord Chamberlain. Moore was a judge in the Court of Requests, or which is also re- known as the Court of Poor Men's Causes. And again, referring to the movie, there's a scene in the movie where there's a there's a litigant that gives gives him a silver cup, and this becomes a, an issue later. They tried to use this as a as a, a justification for trying to pressure more into the uh, succession of the, the Act of Succession and the Act of the Supremacy, because he said, "Well, that he took a bribe." Well, this actually occurred on several occasions, but Moore was very um, astute in how to get out of it. On one occasion, a woman gave him a cup. This was at New Year's. She was a litigant. He drank to her health drank the wine that was in the cup but then gave her the cup back and said that was her gift. Um, similarly, another litigant gave him a silver cup. In return, Thomas Moore sent him a cup back that was in of uh, even greater value. And then one woman tried to pass to him some leather, leather gloves that had uh, 40 pounds in them, which was a tremendous sum of money at that time, and he gave her the money back but he kept the gloves. He served as High Steward at Oxford and Cambridge, both in about 1524, 1525. He was the Undersecretary of the Exchequer in 1521, and he was eventually appointed Lord High Chancellor of England in 1529. He was also a voluminous writer, probably one of his most well-known works is Utopia, which he wrote when he was working for the Company of Mercers. He had been sent to Belgium uh, to help to broker a deal, and at that time in 1515, 1516, he began to write Utopia. It was actually published when he came back to London in 1516 after being on the on the Mercer's business. As a judge, he was very concerned with the the outcome of the various cases and that they be impeccably fair, and he was also concerned about the effect on the poor people, he said instead of inflicting these horrible punishments, it would be far more to the point to provide everyone with some means of livelihood so that nobody under the frightful necessity of becoming first a thief and then a corpse. So enter Henry um, He was the second son of Henry VII. Henry VII is the first Tudor king of England. Um, prior to that, the crown had been worn by the Plantagenets. Henry VIII's brother Arthur was to become king after his father but he died at the age or actually after just 6 months on the throne. At that time Arthur had been married to Catherine of Aragon who was the daughter of the Spanish monarchs Isabella and Ferdinand, yes the same ones that sent Columbus on their vo- on his voyage. He was also, and she was also the cousin of Charles V who was the Holy Roman Emperor so it was a tremendously important political marriage in terms of the alliances that were created as a result of it. Arthur and Catherine were wed in 1501 when Arthur was 15. After his death, Catherine was adamant that the marriage had never been consummated, and because of this, Arthur uh, used this information to solidify his alliance with Spain by obtaining a dispensation from then Pope Julius II, and that Henry might marry Arthur's widow, Arthur's widow and the, and the couple, Henry VIII, to be and Catherine were wed- uh, another Henry because he was an illegitimate son. He could not be the, uh, the heir to the throne. Anne Boleyn and Cardinal Wolsey um, were uh, very much able to lead Henry. He was very much under their, their influence in his various uh, activities both on local politics or politics within England, but also with the politics uh, on the continent. Anne was not content to be Henry's mistress, but she uh, wanted to be his queen. And because of this, Wolsey began to attempt to intercede on Henry's behalf with then Pope Leo X to negotiate an annulment. The annulment is based on uh, the scriptural passages, two different ones, one in the book of Deuteronomy and one in Leviticus. Uh, which uh, would have invalidated the marriage. Henry was actually very staunchly Catholic in the early 1520s. Um, the, the Reformation was taking hold. Luther had nailed his 95 Theses to the, the, the church door in 1517, but as I the Reformation sort of uh, moved slowly, and um, the church didn't take a position on Martin Luther right away. Consequently, Cardinal Woolsey was not very quick to condemn uh, Luther or his writings. John Fisher, who was then Bishop of Rochester in England, uh, approached Augustin- an English Augustinian friar, Bernard Andre, and suggested to him that he, that Bernard Andre, work to get the king to write a book that was to um, uh, speak against the Reformation and speak against Luther's writings. If this was to occur, uh, it would have had three intended results. The first, with the Augustinians would have been seen more favorably in the church, because remember that Martin Luther was also an Augustinian. Luther's heresies would be answered and the king would be in favor with the Holy See. Um, So in 1521, Henry wrote the Sertio Septum Sacramentorum in defense of the seven sacraments to counter Luther's claim laid out in his writings uh, in 1520 and and also the 95 Theses. Luther's writings claimed that there were only three sacraments, baptism and Eucharist, and confession. Later, only two. um, And these were real and from God. The others uh, were basically a creation of man. Henry's writings were uh, presented to Leo X, and Leo declared the sovereigns of England the fide Defensor, the defenders of the faith. How ironic that is, because they still maintain that title today. It hasn't been taken away. Wolsey had risen. He was. He was. Uh, he was quite a. Um, political climber. He'd risen through the ranks. He was actually the Archbishop of York, not the Archbishop of Canterbury. He was a cardinal legate and a papal legate. And the intrigue surrounding the question of Henry's marriage uh, was more complicated uh, because of the various relationships that Catherine of Aragon had with the various uh, sovereigns that were on the continent, as I mentioned earlier. Wolsey contri- continued to try to get an Anglo-French uh, alliance, and to put further pressure on the papacy to grant the divorce, and campaign uh, to get himself elected pope, Leo X. Th- this particular case was removed. Sorry, the case of the the divorce uh, was removed from Legate's court to Rome, and Henry never forgave Bishop Fisher, who. Uh, had spoken out in favor of Queen Catherine. He actually was an instructor of of Queen Catherine. This is a picture of the drawing of John Fisher done by Hans Holbein in about 1536. In 1529, this began the period of uh, one of the long parliaments. The parliament lasted from 1529 until uh, 1536. And the main focus of the parliament was the great matter of the king, having to do with trying, uh, him trying to get a divorce. Catherine was actually sent away from court in 1529. And in 1531, uh, Henry began to cohabitate with uh, Anne Boleyn. Woolsey, because he was unable to secure the divorce, fell out of favor um, in October of 1529, and he di- died in 1530. Before he was able to stand trial for treason. This is the point at which Thomas More became chancellor in 1529 to fill the vacancy left by Cardinal Wolsey. Wolsey was, um, I'm sorry, William Warham who I had showed his picture early earlier, he was still the Archbishop of Canterbury at this time. And, and he, um, he died around this time, around 1530. Was, and then was, uh, there was a Archbishop Henry Dean, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury for two years. And then this was followed by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer. Henry's relationship with Rome at this time was already becoming strained. And as I mentioned, the long parliament was going on between 1529 and 1536. Parliament acted to reinstate priminure, which uh, made it a crime to support in public or in office the claim of any authority outside the realm, outside the realm of England, such as by the papacy, or to have any legal jurisdiction superior to the king. In, in so doing, um, parliament became omnicompetent to do this. They basically took away a lot of the power of the church to pass various laws. And these encroachments on the church moved the bishops of Rochester, I showed you um, John Fisher, also the bishop of Bath and Ely to appeal to Rome. However, Henry issued an edict forbidding the appeal and the bishops, including Fisher, were arrested and imprisoned at this time. Subsequently uh, released, uh, only to be arrested later. In 1531... Henry held the ships and he, he wrote to Rome requesting that Cranmer be appointed the Archbishop of, can- uh, of Canterbury. Cranmer was on the continent at this time, and he was uh, visiting around in various areas. He actually went to Nuremberg in Germany, was involved with the, uh, the local uh, Protestant groups, and he, uh, he married. So as you can see, he wasn't taking some of his, uh, his vows very seriously at that time. From here, things to begin move relatively quickly for the final break with Rome uh, and toward the trial of Thomas More. In May, actually on May 16, 1532, Thomas More resigned as chancellor. He did this the day following uh, the day that the English bishops renounced the right to enact canonical decrees without the king's assent. So they basically war at this point. So, Henry married Anne Boleyn secretly and that that the child be legitimate. But he really became more frantic, realizing that Cranmer was put forth to be the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1533, and this uh, was subsequently approved by Rome. And immediately upon doing so, Cranmer then... Approved the divorce, approved the annulment, and then pronounced uh, that Henry was the king of England. I'm sorry, was was the head of the church in England, and also that um, that 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 they could go ahead and or he could go ahead and proceed and marry Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn and he married formally in April of uh, 1533, and then she was crowned king. uh, She was crowned queen in June of 1533. Henry began working through Parliament uh, to further secure and legitimize his position. In March of 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Supremacy, whereby Henry was made Supreme Head of the Church in England, and the Act of Succession, whereby Anne was named the rightful queen, and her and Henry's offspring were named as the rightful heirs to the throne of England. At this point, Thomas More uh, had already resigned, and he was living still at Chelsea, um, he had not taken advantage of his high position as being Lord High Chancellor. He had not taken a lot of bribes, and he actually uh, was reduced to a an income of about a 100 pounds a year, um, which was not very much for his great household that he had with lots of servants and whatnot. But he was very, uh, kept, kept a good spirit about this. He spoke with his children he called everybody together and he said well we're not just going to go destitute right away first we're going to reduce ourselves not to living at Lord High Chancellor's fair but at Lincoln's inn fair so that's where he was a law student so we we'll, we we'll, we'll do that and if after a year that doesn't work then we can go to the new inn fair which would have been the next lower level and if that doesn't work we'll go to college student level we'll go to Oxford fair and if that doesn't work we'll just go from door to door uh, begging with our bags, and then hopefully, anybody that gives us something, we can sing for them, Salve Regina. In April of 15, 14, Thomas More refused to take the oath of succession, not just because of a qu- but because of the preamble of the oath Henry's marriage was declared null and secondly the formula of the oath rejected papal authority anyone refusing that oath could be punished with imprisonment and forfeiture of property Moore was imprisoned shortly after in the tower in April 1534 also Fisher, John Fisher was imprisoned at the same time and they stayed in, in in the same building within the Tower of London it's called the Bell Tower and Thomas More was believed to be in the lower room, John Fisher was in the upper room, and they passed notes back and forth to each other. Later in 1534, Parliament passed the Act of Treason, which forbade every malicious statement against the king's supremacy under pain of disembowelment, and the Act of Supremacy made Henry the supreme head of the church in England, as I'd said. Repeated attempts were made to get more to take the oath, but he steadfastly refused. And meanwhile, the new Pope Paul III, in May of 1535, elevated John Fisher to Cardinal, thinking that Henry would respect this office and entice him to treat Fisher with less severity while he was in the tower. Henry's answer was to refuse to allow the red hat to be brought into the country, and he said he would rather send Fisher's head to Rome than allow the the hat to be placed on his head in England. So, just going to digress for a minute here. So, here's a couple other paintings by Holbein. This is Jane Seymour, who was Henry's wife after Anne Boleyn and Anne Cleves. And then also Thomas Howard, the third Duke of Norfolk, who was the uncle of Catherine Howard, who was Henry's fifth wife. John Fisher was tried on June 17th in Westminster for high treason, for refusing to acknowledge Henry as head of the church, and he was deprived of his position and wealth by an act of attainder. An act of attainder is where Parliament basically just, they passed a law to make something that was illegal that had already been done, and um, therefore Fisher was tried as a commoner and sentenced to die by hanging, drawing, and quartering. He was executed on June 22nd, his body was initially placed in a grave at All Hallows Church but later moved to St. Peter in Vincula uh, which is, it's actually it's a church in the tower. There's a common grave there. His head was placed on Tower Bridge. Moore was tried on July the 1st for malignant treason for refusing Henry's supremacy and for malignant conspiracy for conspiring with Fisher found guilty guilty and similarly sentenced to die. He was supposed to die by drawing and quartering, but the last minute, uh, Henry, who actually was quite fond of Thomas More, funny way to show it, but he decided that he would uh, spare him and just uh, have him beheaded instead. He was beheaded on July the 6th, feast day in 1535, and it's said that he maintained his good humor to the last. As he started up the uh, scaffold, to be beheaded. He said to the lieutenant, uh, mind you, please help me going up, but I'll fend for myself coming down. Uh, he's always shown clean shaven, um, but apparently after being in the tower for a year and a half, he had quite the beard. As he went to lay his head on the block, he uh, asked the executioner to give him a minute to move his beard to the side because he didn't want his beard damaged because it had committed no treason. And he gave a very brief speech from the from the, uh, from the the gallows where he said, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. Fisher's had been on Tower Bridge. was then thrown into the Thames, and it was replaced with moors. And their bodies were laid next to each other in St. Peter ad vincula. Uh, later, about a month later, well, it, it was customary at that time to... Uh, carboil the parts and then cover them in pitch so that they would stay longer. Uh, And they would uh, leave them up like that so that the various people could see that was what happened to traitors. So they they would leave them out in public view. Um, Moore's daughter, Margaret, is said to have bribed the guards to be able to get Thomas Moore's head. And then she took it to the family home where she she kept it and it's still a relic uh, there today. The English slash French writer Hilaire Belloc claims Moore died alone and unsure that what he was supporting was right, uh, which makes his martyrdom all the more real. So recently there's been, it seems recently, there's been a tradition regarding uh, the question of whether, uh, regarding Thomas Moore's enthusiastic persecution of heretics and whether he's really deserving of being uh, canonized. Um, it's currently repeated in a popular British series entitled Wolf Hall. I don't know if anybody's seen it. There's, it's based on the novels by Hilary Mantel. And it leads one to question of canonizing a man 86 years ago uh, who's now purported to have been so cruel and vicious that he whipped and burnt the peaceful Protestants who were merely attempting to reform a church plagued by scandal. Well, part of the basis for this accusi- accusation is a supposed transformation undergone between his writing of Utopia in 1515, in which his character, King Utopus maintained a policy of religious toleration. And Moore said that, more later, he was asked about this during his lifetime, and he said, in Utopia, there was no revealed religion, so there, there was no Catholicism, if you will. The most important thing about it, uh, for the Utopians, and remem- remembering where Thomas Moore had come from, in terms of the t- turmoil of the Civil War, of the War of the Roses, the effect of the Hundred Years' War, it was important to try to maintain peace, which is also actually what he was trying to do in his own position as Lord High Chancellor. Like all heresies and the related stories, there's nothing new under the sun. The subject was originally taken up about 30 years after Thomas More's death. This, the this, the the subject of whether... Why Thomas More was persecuting heretics, and it actually um, had—it wasn't this wasn't something that More had come up with. The Parliament actually passed in 1401 um, the Act of on the burning of heretics, and uh, it was. it was thereby that this, it actually became a part of the, the job of the state to maintain uh, the, the, um, the success or the, the integrity of the church at that time. But the subject was originally taken up, not in recent years, but 30 years or so after Thomas More's death. John Fox published The Acts and Monuments, and it was later renamed Fox's Books of Martyrs, but he was speaking of the Protestant martyrs uh, of the English Counter-Reformation. This was published in 1563. Brudgett, in his biography of Thomas More, reports that Fox began repeating the traditional gossip of the time and added his own embellishments. Much of what Fox reports is not supported by documentation, and when one reads two of Fox's accounts of Moore's treatment of two different heretics that Moore originally had whipped at the truth tree, which is a tree, or the Yezu tree, which was on Chelsea, grounds of his estate. It's basically the same account, except the names are changed. <clears throat> These stories were circulating while Thomas Moore was alive, and he addressed them in writing, uh, in, his, in his writing The Apology of Thomas Moore, which he wrote in 1533. He denied those accounts, and he already admitted, he did admit to two instances where he had publicly punished people. At Chelsea, one was a young boy who was going about spouting Lutheran doctrine, and he punished him by having him hanged or whipped at the time, which was consistent with the corporal punishment that was admitted. The second was a man who had recently been released from Bedlam, which was a mental hospital, and uh, he was going into church and lifting the women's skirts over their heads during Mass, and uh, he was seen walking by the Chelsea estate at one point at which Thomas More had him grabbed by the constables and had him punished. There was a belief that heretics were violent and dangerous and, relatively, and um, this was expressed by both legal precedents, as I had said, the act of burning the heretics, and by public sentiment. The state, not the church, took the lead in the persecution of heresy in response to the action of John Wycliffe, who led a heretic sect Wallerty in the early, uh, earlier uh, 15th century. In May 1511, six years before Luther's 95 Theses, 10 people were burned in Kent at the stake, denying the real presence of the Eucharist. Problem today. Cardinal Woolsey, as Lord Chancellor, as I said, he, he, he took no position because the church hadn't taken a position against Luther. Uh, but finally, when the, when the church formally excommunicated Luther in 1520, uh, then uh, Woolsey began to order the burning of uh, Luther's books, also prohibiting their publication. Another troublesome character of the time was John Tyndall, uh, a writer who had uh, translated the, the Bible or the New Testament into English, but his translation was suspect, and he translated words um, imprecisely. He used the word ecclesia, which was commonly translated as church. He, he translated as congregation, and the word presbyteros, well, traditionally as priest, but he used it as elder. Tyndall's books were ordered burned as well, and the first public burning of an evangelical took place in Kent, 1530, Followed in 1531 by three such occurrences in London. There were. This was during the time of Thomas More's tenure as Lord High Chancellor, but there were uh, another fifty during Henry's reign after, long after Thomas More had been Lord Chancellor. More maintained that the per- persecution of heretics was in response to their violent uprisings, such as the German Peasants' War of 1524 and the Munster Uprising in 1532, and he pointed out in his English works. That according to St. Paul in Galatians, heresy or faction in religious religion is classed with grievous sins like murder, theft, and adultery, and must be avoided by society as a pestilence. Because of this position of Moore, he he wasn't painted in a very good light. But remember, kind of going back to Hans Holbein, um, Hans Holbein painted Thomas More, the most his, Probably one of the most famous pictures of More on the left. It's a fairly flattering picture. He looks very regal. He um, he looks serious, but not um, he's not painted in an ill light, if you will. Whereas to the right, that's Thomas Cromwell in a very flattering way. Cromwell was certainly instrumental in um, having More imprisoned and subsequently executed. Moore and Fisher were canonized 500 years later, 500 years after their execution on May 19th in 1935 by Pope Pius XI. And it's perhaps ironic to note that they were canonized only five years after the Lambeth Conference in 1530, whereby the Anglican Church for the first time approved contraception. Perhaps their canonization is timely in that they were elevated to sainthood at a time where we are most in need the saints of this caliber. And this is one of my favorite St. Thomas More. He remind us that how we're supposed to serve God, that God made the angels to show him splendor. He made animals for their innocence and plants for their simplicity, but man he made to serve him wittily in the tangle of his mind. So now something else that's just fun because I'm kind of through with that part of the conference. Anybody know who this is? It's Leo McKern. He's an Australian-born actor, and he was in A Man for All Seasons. He played Thomas Cromwell. But he's also, in this picture, you can see over on the very far left, he's actually, his title is The Third Knight. This was the first movie that he appeared in, and this is Murder in the Cathedral. So he's also responsible for getting Thomas Beckett killed. (laughs) There he is at the trial of Thomas More. And then on the right, he later played um, Rumpole, who is a character of John Mortimer. John Mortimer was an English barrister, and uh, Rumpole is this uh, uh, wonderfully kind of doddering but very clever and very cagey, foxy uh, defense attorney. Uh, It's sort of funny how he switched roles there. Um, And Rumpole's, one of my favorite uh, uh, sayings of Rumpole is that he refers to his wife Hilda, as she who must be obeyed. (laughs) Thomas More said, I care not what men think of me, provided that God thinks highly of me. Thank you.